When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. Excited to have all you here today. Right. Hey, y'all. What's up, what's up? It's the news. I'm Brittany Packnett. I'm at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Do it, do it, do it, do it. It's like the joke that never ends. <laughs> I really, you know, I used to tell him that I'm DeRay, at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. I used to tell him that people come up to me and be like, I, I, I. he thought I was joking, but people really do say it every time. No, it's like on the metro. It's a trademark. They're like screaming from the other side, like I, I, I. People are, other people are very confused, concerning. It's like a fire hazard. I don't know. I love it. Uh, we are here at National Geographic as a kid. I love National Geographic. And I love the photos, and I love the, the sort of ominous British man in the documentaries. Um, but it also makes me think about just like science generally and like science classes when I was a kid. And I remember I had this one... Like, the, the one I th- that is most memorable that I think um, a lot of people had is, like, dissecting the frog. And I remember we were in maybe seventh grade, and we were, like, dissecting the frog. Um, and as a, like a, as a seventh grade boy, like, <laughs> inundated, you know, with patriarchy and all the things that, you know, you were told about what a seventh grade boy is supposed to be. Like, Psh, about to cut this frog open. It's about to be, like, it's about to be, be fine. Yeah. And then, chop, chop. like, cut the thing open. But they don't tell you about what all the organs, like, you, so you cut it open, and you're like, oh, okay, this is cool. Like, I feel a little queasy, but I'm all right. <laughs> and then, and you cut, like, if you're not careful, you'll, on the first incision, you, like, cut the organ. And I think I, like, cut the liver, and it, like, splashed oh. like, on your face. And That's it gross. Was, Good job. I, like, still can't look at frogs in the same way. <laughs> no um, frog legs. Did you was, react, though? Like, what did you do? I think it was one of those. It was almost an out-of-body experience because <laughs> we had the goggles, but it, like, uh, still got, like, on the side oh. of my mouth. Uh, uh, and so oh. I was like, mm, uh, uh, I thought mm, I was poisoned. Mm, I was no. just like, I'm nope. going to die. Like, I'm like, what kind of death is this? Uh. Like, death from frogs? Like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> what is my legacy? It was, I was having all these, like, existential <laughs> questions. What is my legacy? In, like, seventh grade, well, I was like, respect uh, me, knowing well, I had frog liver on my mouth. What have I done? What about y'all? What is your science memory? I like I really loved science in elementary school in part because the very non-scientific thing that we were always doing at the back of the lab tables was putting Elmer's glue on our hand <laughs> and letting it dry I forgot and then about trying that. to pull off the whole hand like whoever could pull off the whole hand like the whole, so not the outline like Yeah the like whole... you can't get it you can't break it right if you broke it you had to start over We didn't do it that It was a whole thing We didn't do that So that bad. was that is not scientific whatsoever but it was very intense I don't know what <laughs> and y'all I enjoyed doing it I was really good I was you just had to be slow and steady Kids are making slime now don't they make slime They make slime now inside that science class. We just played Damn. with Elmer's glue, which was made for children. Science <laughs> class going remember, off the rails. Yeah, it is. I definitely remember it was my freshman year of high school, though, where it was very clear to me that like, I was told I'm not good at science. And that's like when I started to internalize the idea that I was not supposed to be good at science. So I had all my dreams of being a pediatric surgeon, just like George Clooney was on ER. Mm. And they were dashed very quickly because ER. it was like, no, 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 mm. this is not your thing. Wow. Yeah, Wait, I'm a said it's old. On, Gosh, you Somebody said it's on something. It. It's on Hulu. ER's on Hulu. Everyone should watch What's it. What's the doctor's name? Mark, Dr. Green. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Dr. Fine. I'm, you know. <laughs> Dr. Hansen. Sorry about that. <laughs> Whoops. 
Yeah. So yeah, that was that was me in science. Yeah. Yeah, my story is kind of similar. I was fascinated by the planets. I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Like I would watch like Stephen Hawking. Have one in the crowd. Rest tonight. in peace. Like, he was incredible. Like I understood the universe and the interaction between the different galaxies and the Big Bang and like everything. Sam's sort of, like whatever like, you whatever you hear me say about you know head. criminal criminal justice issues, policing. Like I was doing that for like planets and like the distance between the planets, the way they interacted and like everything. And then. At some point, it must have been like middle school, I was like into, into like nuclear physics. I was like, dope, I want to be a physicist. And then like after that, it just shifted. A, in middle school, you had a class about nuclear physics? <laughs> Not a class. It was like, I got the book. I went to the library. Oh, I, got, I was I like, the library, what school I got this big book? <laughs> this massive textbook. And I would just sit there with this big book on nuclear physics. And then uh, after that, I just shifted into social sciences. I think the, <laughs> similar to, to your story, Brittany, I think the, the world sort of caught up to me. In the sense that, like, racial injustice, uh, racism, like, my direct environment was just so much more uh, salient than, like, the planets or, like, the galaxies far away. Uh, and so I shifted my focus to studying that instead. I mean, the glue was what really held my attention. So <laughs> our experiences were a little different, but yes. <laughs> but it, it is interesting, though, to Sam's point, to think about the ways. So I think there's sort of, like, the explicit ways in which, you know, Brittany gave an example of, like, what a black child is being told about a whether... Black girl a black child, girl child yeah. which is important, uh, about whether or not they can be uh, a scientist or a doctor. And then I think there's this other part that Sam alluded to, which is this idea that, like, to be... Uh, part of a marginalized or a historically oppressed community um, means to... It's not even that you have to be told that there's not room for you in this thing. Is that because of the other yeah. sort of things that you see happening around you, you find yourself drawn yeah. to things that you feel have like a sort of material impact, which isn't to say that science doesn't, right? Because science most yeah. definitely does. But it's that's one of the insidious things about racism is that it will like that it can draw a young child away from their interests because they think that it is not sort of relevant to their lives in the most immediate sort of way. Yeah. I will say, you know, I have the least, you guys had cool experiences. I was tracked in the lowest science class. So we did like worksheets. All I can, like literally my entire, like I can think about like the dope movies we watched. And remember like the fill in the blank worksheets where you're like, it's like first chunk of the movie, like fill in these four blocks. I'm like, got it. And I didn't, <laughs> I was very good at those worksheets if any of you have questions. Uh, but I don't think I learned much science. I think about being a teacher and visiting the science classes. And I think that was also questionable science in that classroom. So I don't think I've ever been in like a dope science classroom. That's really sad. Actually. Yeah, I think we did cut something. I don't know if it was a frog. I think it was like cow eyes. Don't people cut cow yeah. eyes? Yeah. I feel like that's what I, I don't even know if they let us cut it as much as I saw that happening in class. <laughs> like, They're like, there's one sky. Right, right there, there's one eye. I think yes. there was one eye. And it was like, share the eye. So yeah, that was not. I need, to, I need like National Geographic to host a like science class for adults. I need that. That's what I need. Yeah. yeah. That's real. Well, in positive news on today, uh, today is a very important day for a lot of reasons. One, it is Jay-Z and Beyonce's anniversary. Bonnie it should Clark. really be a national holiday, to be no. honest. We should all have off that and, the, and voting. I just people, got my people tickets. People ask me how she smells. She smells great, by the way. <laughs> she, she does. She does. Um, but the other thing that is important about today is it would have been Maya Angelou's 90th birthday today. And so on one hand, I think about the very clear messages that were sent to me as a young black woman about the sciences and math um, pretty early uh, in age. And yet I think about all of the ways in which I felt deeply empowered by her work, by the poems that she wrote, by the dignity and pride with which she always carried herself. I met her when I was very young. You did? I did. I, I didn't she know was that. a I heard my dad took me to hear her speak at Washu, which ended up being my alma mater. Um, and uh, how young were you? I had like to be, if my dad, no, if okay. that was good. Because, you know, Brittany, if you have any stories, you're like, Brittany. <laughs> you're like, how long ago right. You're like, um, when, when was that? I'm a little older than the rest of y'all. It's fine. Uh, I, um, if my dad was still alive, I think I was like eight or nine. Okay. I think it was That's eight or fair. nine. I'll give you that. Um, but I, I remember my dad being like, this is a very important person. You need to take this That's seriously. Dope. And she signed the book and she gave me a hug and she also smelled really good. I do remember that. Um, but yes, like, thank you, Mother Maya, for everything yeah. that for us. Isn't she the doodle? She she's is a doodle the doodle. She's a doodle. And isn't it Oprah and um, isn't it narrated by somebody? It's Oprah and 
Isn't Oprah one of the people? Yes. yes. There, there are many people. <laughs> They're like, it's many people. I'm like, like Oprah. Is it? Um, <laughs> stop trying to steal Oprah from me. I'm so those of you who, if this is your first time being with us, then you might not know that we do the news and everybody brings a piece of their news. We don't really talk about the news before. Uh, we do it on stage, so it's fresh for all of us. So uh, Sam, take us away. Yes, yeah, so my piece of news is a bill that's been introduced in the California State Legislature uh, called AB 931. Uh, it has like a much better name. It's like the Police Accountability and Something Something Act, but AB 931 is what I know it as. And um, so this bill has been introduced at, in the aftermath of the Stefan Clark shooting uh, in Sacramento. The bill would change the deadly force standard, the law uh, that specifies when police officers are authorized to use deadly force, and it would change it by changing the requirement from reasonable, the current requirement, whenever an officer thinks it's reasonable, to necessary, after all other means have been exhausted, all of the reasonable means have been exhausted, and what it also does that's interesting is that it changes how they calculate uh, whether or not something was reasonable and necessary. So uh, it tends to be, and we saw this in the Alton Sterling case and the Attorney General in Louisiana, their report they tend to exclude everything that the officer does before the shot is actually fired, before the moment that the officer shoots. So we saw it with the Alton Sterling case, that officer, Officer Salamone, went up to Alton Sterling, uh, put a gun to his head, threatened him, escalated the situation, and then shot him 90 seconds later. And in evaluating that decision, they said the use of force was justified because everything that the officer did before didn't matter at all and didn't play any role. Uh, and was not pa- was not part of the calculation of whether that was reasonable. Well, in California, they're changing that to say an officer's actions leading up to the use of force count towards the decision of whether or not that use of force was necessary. Uh, and so this is this is incredibly important. You know, we talk about police violence and the rules about police violence all the time. Oftentimes, we cite two Supreme Court precedents: Tennessee versus Garner and Graham v. Connor. Um, which are really low, you know, really low standards, allowing police to, as we've seen, use deadly force in so many situations where it's clearly unnecessary. Uh, And this would be a state taking action to change that, which any state can do. Uh, And so, you know, I'm optimistic that this can pass. The police unions are incredibly powerful in California and have come out against this. Uh, But, you know, this would be major studies show. In fact, the research that we've done has shown that uh, states that adopt this policy are about 16% less likely uh, to kill people. There are four states that have that, uh, Tennessee, Rhode Island, Delaware, and Iowa. And police departments that decide to adopt this voluntarily are 25% less likely to kill people. So this is significant, could have a real impact on people's lives uh, and making communities safer. I mean, I'm glad that got some applause because this is actually a really, really big deal. Uh, And I think it can feel like the work of freedom, the work of justice, work against any injustice that we are facing can feel so arduous and take so long. I'll never forget um, December 1st, 2014, we were in, myself and some other activists were in an Oval Office meeting with the other president, our president, (laughs) with President Obama. And um, we we were in this meeting that was supposed to last like a half hour and ended up lasting almost 90 minutes because we ended up having this broader conversation about how change happens. And one of the things he did was he walked us to uh, the Dr. King quote on his carpet about the arc of the moral universe being long, but it bending toward justice. And, you know, I had all these thoughts in my head and President Obama was like, look here, it's long, right? Like, pay attention to that <laughs> That was part. a good impression. Ooh, that was good. That was good. I have many talents. Uh, (laughs) um, But he he was essentially like, you need to be in this for the long haul. And Dr. King spent a lot of time talking about why we shouldn't dismiss the little victories. What he said was that a final victory is an accumulation of many short-term encounters. This is a short-term encounter. And actually winning this and, and conferring this policy change could actually help, you know, set a domino effect that can, can um, be seen across multiple states that could uh, obviously be seen across communities in California and hopefully prevent more, more tragedies like uh, what happened to Stefan Clark. And so it feels little, but it's actually a really, really big thing. It's something that can build and build and build. And I think it's important to, to recognize that, the, that activists are still just as they were 
in Ferguson, just as they were in New York, just as they were across the country in sort of 2014, 15, when um, this felt like it was at its, at its height. Uh, and, and we've talked about this before, but we can convince ourselves that um, the problem is not as great as it once was and that like there were these couple of years where like police shootings were really bad. Um, but, but I think what happened to Stephon Clark is emblematic of the fact that had this happened in a different political atmosphere had this happened in a moment that wasn't so saturated with everything else the sort of daily uh inundation of scandal and things coming from the white house um that this crime was just as egregious um as so many of the crimes that got as much attention in 2014 and 2015 and 2016 um and and again just because something is not being just because msnbc and cnn aren't you know fox did fox send people to ferguson <laughs> <I don't, laughs> to troll us, yeah. Well, you know, um, <laughs> just because reporters aren't sending their folks to these places in the same way and having sort of like hour-long specials on it does not mean um, that the problem has uh, has been solved. But I think that you know these are this bill is an important um, reminder that like again when we say it all the time, these things happen on like a, a local level, on a state level, and ultimately. Um, you know, I think there are examples of things that, like, you win in your local jurisdiction, you win in your um, city, you win in your state. And, and like Brittany said, that serves as a sort of cascading effect um, that ultimately can create change at the federal level. And just to be very clear, we're, we're talking about Stefan Clark because you're talking about a bill in California. But right before we came on stage, we heard that a police officer in Brooklyn shot an unarmed man. They thought he was armed, and it appears that he was actually holding a shower head yeah, yeah. and was shot from, from what I read five times. So this is very, very present. Yeah. And I'll say a couple of things is that we worked really hard four years ago to help people stop saying police brutality and start saying police violence because we felt like brutality made it seem like episodic and random and violence helped it, it helped it help people experience it as like a constant thing which is like how people are experiencing in communities so it is important that like the language of police violence is a language that we use now we also talk about there's a study that came out that showed that a third of all the people killed by a stranger in this country is killed by a police officer and we like keep reminding people of that because like the work is still as important and like the trauma is still as present. What's interesting about Sacramento is that we did uh, a project around police union contracts about, I guess, three, two, two and a half years ago now. Mm -hmm. And we did the same one about use of force policies, which is why Sam knows so much about use of force policies <laughs> and police union contracts. And what's interesting is that the Sacramento police uh, union contract says that all discipline is automatically erased from police officers' files every year. That's crazy. Uh, all written reprimands are erased and destroyed every two years. That is crazy. Uh, and those are things that, like, the city agreed to. They negotiated in the contract, and, like, they should change that. The use of force policy in Sacramento doesn't ban things like chokeholds. Like, we think that that sort of is crazy. It has no continuum of force. Like, there's no sort of, like, you need to exhaust all force, like what Sam is talking about going to be in the law. Like, those are choices that people have made. And I think four years ago, I would have said that these are like bad people making bad decisions in a bad system. I did not understand like the choices that people have made at the system level, like both in places like Sacramento and in places across the country. I was just in Portland, Oregon, and in Portland, they have a clause that is like still blows my mind. I call it the embarrassment clause because it literally says in the contract the police officer has to be disciplined in the least embarrassing way to the officer in the department. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. Right? <laughs> there are departments across the country where officers can bring recording devices to their interrogations. They have like mandated breaks so they can request 10 minute breaks for rest for meal. You're like, that is crazy. If the police can do it, then the public should be able to do it. Right. And like, that's just not fair. So we want to help people understand that this is not about a few bad apples. This is about a bad barrel. That this is about how do we change like the entire system around how police are held accountable so that there is justice in any capacity. Amen. Yeah. So for my news, I want to bring in the obvious um, other significant element of today, April 4th, 2018, because it is, of course, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. And I have been, I think we've all been thinking about this day and anticipated this day. Um, a lot of us have been asked to have conversations on it, to write about it. Um, and there are lots of takes that one can have on this. But I was listening to NPR this morning, 
And one of the perspectives they chose uh, was to actually look through the lens of where Memphis is today. Of course, when Dr. King was killed, he had just launched the Poor People's Campaign. He was in Memphis to march with sanitation uh, workers who were striking uh, because they um, were not receiving anything close to a living wage. Um, and this day for me begs the question, not just of what happened on that day and what led up to that day, but what we have actually done or not done with the following 50 years. Uh, and so that is really where I have been spending my time. And therefore, this NPR piece was fascinating to me um, because it turns out that in Memphis, 88% of management roles are still going to white people. 76% of labor or workforce roles are going to black people in a majority black city, mind you. Um, and Memphis is the poorest metropolitan area in the country. Uh, and so if the question is, what, what have we done with the 50 years following the assassination of Dr. King? The answer is clearly not enough, including in the very place where he was killed. And this is not at all to single Memphis out. Like we could look at any city across the country. Um, but it is to say two things. One, to remind ourselves of what we talk about constantly on the pod, that we cannot talk about isms as separate from one another. And re we have to recognize that classism and racism work together, that patriarchy works along with it, that white supremacy works along with it. And if we try to separate those things, then our solutions will actually be ineffective. Um, but we also have to really question ourselves and provoke ourselves to do more with the leg legacies that our leaders leave us. I'm also thinking of Winnie Mandela, who died this week, uh, and thinking about her anti-apartheid work and where South Africa is. South Africa is still experiencing 28% unemployment. They are just getting through a recession. They have massive racial wealth gaps, even larger than the ones that we have here in America. Uh, and so we have to be clear about the yoke that we have to pick up from folks. Uh, and so I wanted to bring this here, not just because of what we are thinking about today, but I think it's really easy to like commemorate people and have nice symbolic actions and change your avatar and put up a quote and, you know, t say all the nice sanitized things we want to say about Dr. King and forget that we have often abdicated our responsibility to make the last 50 years better than the 50 years before that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there are some things that have gotten better, right? There are things where, you know, black folks are more educated now than in 1968. Uh, you know, black folks have a higher level of, you know, home ownership slightly. Um, you know, but overall, when we look at economics writ large, the issue that, that Dr. King talked about so much in those later years, uh, that is quantified to me by the racial wealth gap. The racial wealth gap, it's, it's bigger than income. Income is how much you're making right now. Wealth is the sum total of everything that you have, not just what you're making in your paycheck. It is you know, what you own, if it's a house, if it's stocks and bonds, if it's a car, if you have savings in a bank account. All of that together is your total economic status or economic, it's your total economic resources. And on that metric, things have gotten worse. Things have gotten substantially worse since 1968, so much so that now uh, projections show that black, for black families, the median black household will have zero wealth by 2053, uh, while white households will have, continue to have, have 100, over $100,000 now and will continue to have even more in the future. And this is, this is, my, like my, the last thing that I want to say about Dr. King is, you know, folks have weaponized Dr. King against the very people who are trying to emulate him. So the amount of times that we are on Twitter and people are like, well, you're the real racist because Dr. King said judge people by the content of their character. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Um, I'm like, who killed King? Right? <laughs> like, because uh, it wasn't us. Um, there, but, but my challenge to all of us is to, A, reclaim King, uh, and to do so in a way that is rooted in what he talked about as a revolution of values, right? And he wasn't necessarily speaking religiously as much as he was saying, it's not just about policy, it's not just about conferring people their rights, it's about making all decisions in such a way that we actually prove to people that we value them. So if you wanna to talk to me about how King talked about love and that's gonna be your pitch, then you need to prove to me that you love me by how you vote. You need to prove that you love me right, by how you talk about my child, right? You need to prove that you love me, not just by coming out to the march, but by actually disrupting the status quo and all of those quiet moments when you are called back into the comfort Absolutely. of white supremacy. So like challenge people to actually prove to you that they believe and stand on what King talked about. Yeah. Um, so I just want to bring up 
uh, and I felt this was appropriate because of the space that we're in and, and the relationship of National Geographic to um, science and genetics and, and, and those, that sort of discourse. There is uh, a sort of resurgence in conversations around the relationship between genetics and race, and that's in part because uh, a, a man called David Reich um, has a new book coming out in which he, he says, quote, uh, it is simply no longer possible to ignore average genetic differences among races, um, among other, other things that uh, deserve to be seriously interrogated. And, and it's important because, you know, Sam Harris and Charles Murray are, are back in the discourse and, and a couple of people have responded, but there was a really wonderful piece in BuzzFeed that was a response from uh, 67 scholars and disciplines ranging from natural sciences, medical, population, health sciences, social sciences, and they were challenging, challenging this idea, right? Because the premise of it is that there are some, pe- some races of people who are genetically and inherently inferior um, because, of the ra- like because of their race, right? And that is not us being racist. That is just a scientific fact. And, and I think it's important to be precise in this, right? It is fully possible to acknowledge that there, are, there is genetic variance in the human species based on the place from which people geographically originate from. Like scientists are pretty clear on that. That is a fundamentally different thing than to say that a race, which is a socio-political definition of people, is inherently superior or inferior. And I think those two things have been conflated in like a pretty profound way to, because you can't at once say that the that white people are just inherently superior to black people because of their genetic makeup, and then continue to change the definition of whiteness over the course of decades and centuries, right? So it's like, you know, the same way we talk about how, like, the Italians, back in the day, you know, white Americans would look at the Italians and the Polish and the Irish and be like, ooh, we don't rock with y'all. Ooh, (laughs) y'all. You're not white. You're not white. You're not white like me. Yeah. and then they were like, ooh, we kind of need you because, like, there are a lot of black people coming. So, <laughs> so they moved the lines of white. They moved the lines of whiteness. Literally, yeah. we're saying, okay, we are going to sort of, like, assimilate you into, you, you weren't white before, but you could be white now. And so now we can all oppress black people and Native Americans together. So what that a fun sounds party. Great, right? And, but, but I say that because, you know, we can fall into this trap of even in the medical sciences, right? People will say that sickle cell anemia is, like, a black disease. But sickle cell anemia is not a disease that is specific to black people. Sickle cell anemia is a disease that is specific to people who are originating from geographic regions that have uh, contact with malaria, right? So it is certain parts of Western and Central Africa. It is also certain parts of India. It is also certain parts of the Mediterranean. And so we fall into these sort of uh, profound like conflations of of what race is as as a sociopolitical phenomenon and then what we... Call start. We try to call race as a biological phenomenon, even though there is no biological phenomenon of race. Um, and so I think that's important to know. And you know, there are a range of problems, like even using IQ as the like singular definition of what constitutes as intelligence. When like that test was made, like by racist people and phrenologists who were like who were attempting to use it to legitimate. Uh, the, the fact that black people were superior. So you can't use a test that was created to prove <laughs> that certain people were inferior and then say, look, this test shows that you're inferior. Yeah. I mean, that's just, but, you know, Trump's America, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 it's not just Trump's America, right? right? Like, I, I recently read the story of Stanley Kaplan, and you know his name because of Kaplan, all of the test prep courses. And essentially, Stanley Kaplan was a low-income Jewish man who realized that the SAT and other aptitude tests were being used by elite colleges and universities by, by white people who did not count Jewish people among white people um, at the time and said, this, we're going to use this aptitude test essentially to keep our school WASP only um, and, and push out any Jewish folks. And so what he basically did was like, I'm not going to conven- convince you that I'm just as smart as you, just as good as you, et cetera. So I'm just going to crack your code. Mm. So he literally developed all of these test-taking systems and started to teach them to his neighbors, who all happened to be other Jewish kids growing up in his neighborhood. It's like, ah, we exactly, got now. Right, we got you, right? <laughs> and people were really upset, and he was like, it's your test. We just taking it, right? Like, and we're finally mastering it, So, and now you're mad. Now you want right. to move the finish line because we've actually figured out how to cross it. They always um, so watch it's, it's not just Trump's America. It's been happening yeah. for a very long time. 
the other piece that's interesting, one, the test was designed in a way to get the outcome that they designed it for. The other thing is that there are multiple different forms of intelligence, right? It is not just sort of cognitive intelligence that the IQ test claims to, to measure. There are a range of other uh, variants of intelligence that are not centered by the test. That was a decision, a cultural decision that was made to prioritize a particular type of intelligence over others. Who made that decision? I'll let you guess. The second piece, <laughs> but even with the test that was designed that way to measure a particular thing, the scores change over time. So since the 1940s, the, the average score on the IQ test has increased dramatically, right? And people are saying that the reason be, that that happens is because people's environments inform their IQ scores. The ways in which you are cognitively stimulated in your, in your upbringing, in schools, in your community, in your environment, the amount of resources you have to take uh, cognitively stimulating tests and experiences and have cognitively stimulating jobs, all of that impacts your practice for something like an IQ test. And so these things are not only you know, socially constructed from the start, but socially constructed throughout in the sense that if you are depriving a particular community access to the resources to essentially practice for the test, to perform at the test, and then using those test scores that show exactly that to then justify continuing to deprive that community of more resources, you're actually creating the self-fulfilling prophecy that you were saying, right? And I think that that is just another layer of racism that informs that. Now, what I'll say, you know, people, the people who say that we're the real racist, what they also say is they're like, why are you making everything about race? And it's like, race is making everything about me, right? That I would love to not, like, live in a world where, where race was such a big factor in the negative sense. That wasn't my choice. I'm just responding. You know, people are like, why y'all, like, did you see violence in the street? And I'm like, absolutely. The police were so violent. And that's why we were out there, right? We were responding to violence. We didn't bring the violence. And like, that's an important reminder for me. But the thing about the scientific racism is that, like Sam sort of talked about, is that you think about the bell curve and the, the significance of the book, The Bell Curve, in the study that sort of said that like low IQ leads to like poverty and all these bad social outcomes, like that stuff had a huge impact on the way that we built programming across urban America. And to this day, like there are a lot of programs that are rested on this idea that like poor people just can't make good decisions for themselves, so we'll make it for them. And like that just can't be the way that we actually build a safety net for people. It can't be a way that we actually help like give people skills so they can make better decisions and they have more options to make better decisions. It's one of the interesting things when we talk about the racial wealth gap and we talk to people about financial literacy because we'll talk to people and they're like, you should have financial literacy classes. And the experts are like, poor people know how to manage their money better than everybody else because they have to, right? That it's not about like teaching them, they ain't got no money, right? They know how to manage the money they got that like you teaching them about 401k that they can't access like isn't actually like a game changer in that moment that they have skills, but there's like a legacy of thought that's like these people with low IQs actually like can't function and can't like be partners in their own experience in the society. And so we call out this scientific racism and I'm about to bring up two guests who will extend this conversation so we can talk about it a little bit more about like what is the role of science in the way that we talk about race. So I'll see the news crew later and then I'll introduce these two people. Let's give them a round. We love them. They're coming back. They're coming back. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to 
to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Introducing our show, the Tema American Reshoring ETF, the pioneer in investing in America's infrastructure revival and beyond. Invest in the companies we've identified as leading and benefiting from this industrial resurgence today. Visit us online, temaetfs.com slash RSHO. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus and summary prospectus available at temaetfs.com. Read carefully. Investing involves risk, including possible loss. Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. With BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So we're going to have Jirada and we're going to have Kyolu come out soon. Jirada is the first African-American woman to receive a PhD in astrophysics from Yale. She's a real live astrophysicist. She's the only astrophysicist I've ever met, so I'm excited to talk to her today. She founded Vanguard Conversations with Women of Color in STEM, a monthly web series, and she's a champion of inclusive STEM enterprise work through her work in schools, museums, and nonprofits. So she'll be out in a second, and Kiolu is a geneticist, also I think the first geneticist I've ever met, Uh, and he's the first Native scientist to get a PhD in genome sciences. He co-founded Indigenomics, a tribal nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing genomic expertise to indigenous communities. He also is a surfer. I'm excited to have them both join us. Did I do? You did it. Oh. I did it. Huh. Okay, you're the first astrophysicist I've ever met. Hey, boo. What is an astrophysicist? <laughs> so, an astrophysicist, great question. It's a person who studies space. Okay. Applies physical principles to space and what we know. Space, like space space? Like, or like outer space, space. space. Outer space. Like stars, planets, like Sam was talking about. Got it. Okay. And I, in particular, really like supermassive black holes called blazars. <laughs> Team blazars. I was waiting He's like, for it. Yes. I'm like, what's a blazar? <laughs> a blazar is a supermassive black hole. A black hole is like they really aren't. This is a real question. So tell me. I was smiling, so I th- you might have thought I was joking, but this is real. I trust you. In the you. cartoons, the black holes, like, suck things into them. Is that real, or is that, like, fake on TV? I just want to, I want to say this one time. Okay. <laughs> oh, yikes. Black holes are not vacuums in space. Okay. Uh, but they people are think that. Like, I know, that's why I was, Black holes are not vacuums in space. Uh, They are something that's so massive that not even light can escape, but it's not just like going around sucking up everything around it. Like, gravity has to work, and the physical laws have to work. And so, for example, DeRay, if you you replace the sun with a black hole that was exactly the same mass, what would happen? How does a hole have a mass? Wait, we'll get there. I'm we'll trying to there. understand. We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, okay, okay. We'll get there. I'm just, you know, just pretend like try to you keep can. it honest on the pod. I got questions. Here we are. I got an answer. Okay, I'm just okay, trying so to Okay, so pretend like you could. Just, just okay, move I'm with the you. sun, put a black hole there, same mass. Yes. Okay. What would happen to the earth? 
I don't know. I'm not I'm a vacuum in space. <laughs> Keoli, what I'm would a geneticist. happen? I'm a geneticist. Okay. No. Nothing. Nothing. You would not notice any difference for eight minutes. Well, that's <laughs> okay. Eight minutes. Someone knows why this eight minutes, but it's because it's not a vacuum, right? Like the same mat. The the reason why we orbit around the sun is okay. because of the mass of the Earth and the mass of the sun. So if you just replace the same mass as a black hole... That makes... I got that. You're just going to keep going. I mean, now you have other issues, yeah, like no sun. <laughs> that's what happens in minute... That's what happens in minute 10. Right. right. You're like, and you're like, no oh. sun. You're like, and we're done. Okay. Kyola, you're a geneticist. What do geneticists do? Let me tell you that the only thing I really know about geneticists that I don't really know, but I like went to a meeting with a person, um, <laughs> is, is CRISPR because people are trying to choose the genes for their kids. Oh, so I know that. And I also know, that's what I think CRISPR is. So tell me if I'm wrong. But I also know uh, 23 and Me and DNA tests. That is genomics. <laughs> oh, we're going to get there. Okay. So oh. talk to me about what does a geneticist do? So depending on your sort of role at work, there's... What do you do? That's what Okay, I, I do a lot of things. Obviously, we have our own sort of passion projects. We do a lot of computational things, scripting, write code, write grants, public-facing work. We also do experiments on the bench. This is what you're referring to with CRISPR, right? Are this you a is, CRISPRist? I am. I am a CRISPRist. Is that what they're called? Term. A genome editor. So Not that's Cri- the term Crisperist. we've been using to... Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> CRISPRist sounds better, though. Can you but, say what CRISPR is for people that don't know? Sure. It's, imagine you go in to write an email, and you c- kind of press Control-F, and you find a piece, and then you do Control-V, right? Or, you know, you're, you're copying and replacing specific areas in the genome. Right? So if there's a typo and you want to correct it, and that typo leads to sickle cell, for example, you can do what we call a molecular microsurgery. This is sort of in the future, but now we are testing and understanding what mutations do using genome editing tools. So think about it this way. 2000, you know, 2001, we have the Human Genome Project. That sort of happens. We're reading the genome. We're sequencing it. Mm-hmm. And now we're writing. Very elementary, but we're writing. So that's where we're at. Is it... Are you, are you pro-CRISPR? Is there like an anti-CRISPR crowd? Yeah, yeah, there's an anti-CRISPR crowd. People want to regulate things. I'm pro-culturally sustainable science. So you like that? Use that. That's, okay. Don't forget to, you know, TM that, you know. <laughs> but uh, but I, I'm pro-ethical science. So it has to be a good question and a good means to an end. Mm-hmm. You can't just use some omnipotent power, like you said, to design a baby I don't, I don't, if the baby is going to have a sort of congenital issue and you want to correct that, um, you know, that's cool. But then there are all of these other bioethical issues on the other side of that. It could be a brave new world of health disparities where a certain kind of class of people, not, not to get too heavy so early, but I think it's important. What you if, you know, what if we are genome editing a certain class of people and we're socially stratifying our own community and creating health disparities because people don't have access to healthcare, so they don't have access to CRISPR, so they don't have access to a kid that's Gattaca. six, five, exactly, Gattaca, or a lot of these sort of brave new world scenarios. And did I, uh, this is called Race What Defines Us. How does race, and I'm genuinely curious, okay. what is the intersection of race and astrophysics? <laughs> I, I mean... I mean, you. apart from the, <laughs> 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 apart from the obvious, um, no. So it's it's a really interesting question. And like, tell me how you got to black hole. Like, I'm just like, was it Sam? You were just like in the library, and you're like, I gotta know. I mean, we were legit, like, definitely geeking out behind the scenes on on that. But it is it is the case that I I, I saw a story about black holes, and I was like, um, that's the coolest thing in the universe. And I said, well, I'm literally, that was good. That was good. That was good. I'll give you that one. But I meant it. I'm glad you caught it, though. Well done. I was a little slow, but you know, (laughs) Brittany is so quick that, like, I gotta stay on it. Them black women, man. Anyway, um, and I saw it and I said, I'm gonna study this until I find something cooler that I wanna do. And for me, I never found anything cooler. Now, to Brittany and Sam's point, you know, I'm, and this gets back to your question about the intersection, yeah. it did become apparent that people weren't really ready for me to be doing this work. They didn't know how to process me being both a black woman and an astrophysicist, but I'm real ornery-like. They're like, are you a real scientist? No, they were like, like, that's so cute. 
you know, like mm. the same kinds of things that they were talking about. But as I said, I'm, I'm ornery. And so when you tell me I can't, that's the first thing I got to do. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to go and do this thing. Um, so when you ask what the intersection is, less in the term of like race as biology kind of thing, the way that I think about it is race in biology. Like how are we allowing... One more time, say it again. So I... not like race as biology. That's, okay. that's Kayla who's got you covered on that. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in race in biology, like race in STEM. Like how okay. are these systems allowing for anyone to be a part of them. So when if you if you wanted to know where the intersection starts for me, it starts in terms of freedom, the right to love space and to love black holes or to love nanoparticles or whatever and be the person you were born to be. No matter Are nanoparticles that. in black holes? No. Okay. I just thought I'd ask. I got it. You know, I got it. I don't know. I was know. trying to be equal opportunity. No, with I you. like it. I'm just trying to know what's going on. Yeah, no, they're not. But, but to say that. I you heard your larger point, that. too. I got yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> That's my thing. That's my thing. But why you, I don't get to talk to astrophysicists often, so I got to like. You know, you could. Is there a second coolest? So you haven't found anything cooler than black holes. Is there something like one step down? Yes, the brain. Mm. No, seriously, like seriously, the brain. If, okay. if, if I had it, not to do over again, because I like what I did, but if I had it to do like in parallel, I would totally want to like understand neuroscience and the brain, because it's like the next outer space. I think it's super cool. Go ahead and preach. Kildu, genetics and race. Like what are the things that we, you know, and again, you're the first geneticist I've talked to. I want to believe that there's a lot to do with genetics and race. Uh, what are the things that we should be mindful of as we think about, like, talking about genetics in the context of race? All right, we're going to unpack this one. <laughs> this is, like, what we would refer to in the genetics world as a firing squad question. So it's heavy. The history is heavy. There's a lot to talk about here. Are there but, camps? Can we start with, are there camps? Absolutely, absolutely. I think within... Within the academic community, they are, are as well. And then within genomics, there are sort of biological anthropologists, people who work on paleo stuff, and so on and so forth. But I kind of want to just go back to that question. Like, the fact that we're addressing this in a public forum, in a public-facing way, is really important. Because the majority of people in my field would never go near it. They would, you know, run, they would have ran off the stage already. So, with all of that being said, I, I want to just repeat this. Clint sort of, you know, mentioned this and hit it on the nose. He was very elegant in describing uh, this sort of interface with race and genetics. But there is no basis for race in terms of biology. There just isn't. It's a socially constructed phenomenon. Generally speaking, and I can give you tons of examples of this, you know, we're talking about... Partition in India, um, Israel, Palestine, um, you know, all of these different conflicts, all of these things kind of center around separating people from resources and using things that we kind of confuse as signatures of race. We get it confused with ethnicity a lot of the times, but one thing that's really important is something like skin color is a genetic component, a genetic variant that contributes to something that's physically observable. That's what we call a phenotype, the word we use to describe it. But that is not associated with race, i.e. a social construct. These things are like oil and water. And it causes a lot of controversy within our field. People generally don't do a good job handling these sorts of questions. I hope I'm doing it justice. Um, but I, I think, on the whole, they're used to separate us they're used as a device, as a weapon, as you guys alluded to. And it is potentially dangerous. And it's excellent that we're having this conversation about this today. Why do you think that... So Clint's news this week was about sort of the reemergence of scientific racism in the mainstream. Correct. How is it coming back? Like, we... we, we we have the language now to talk about like racist things as racist, right? And we're like, well, that is sort of, I think about, I was saying uh, to Clinton when I was in college, I'll never forget, I was in a class and this, one of my classmates was like, well, you know, black people always win the racist because their calves are bigger. And I'm like, I'm like, what is happening? I was like, what? Oh. You know, I'm just like, oh my God. 
so that is my like, you know, text to life connection or whatever. Right. But try to think about like what allows, what is happening in either the field or do you think in the, in general space <laughs> yeah. um, that allows, <laughs> I just couldn't pass up a universe yeah. joke. Um, what's happening that allows like that to reemerge in this way? Or like, and why do you think prominent people are sort of behind it? And I think I was, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that National Geographic actually has hired that guy who wrote that racist article in the New York Times. So like, help me. And I don't know, you know, I just met yeah. the National Geographic people today. So I'll talk to you guys afterwards. But yeah. how is this, um, how is this happening? Correct. So that op-ed was written by David Wright. So uh, at Harvard Medical School. And there is what we call academic currency. This is creating grant money, these sort of things that allow you to move your weight around in that space, right? What has happened is that there has been an advancement in technology that has allowed us to interpret ancient genomes. This is a field we call paleogenomics. So identifying fossils that are 50,000 years old in a cave in the Altai Mountains, right? Uh, this is something my mom calls paleogenomics. That's the Hawaiian version. Now, now, what's interesting is, so I want everybody to think about this, because this is a really powerful idea. Now, if you let a certain handful of white men interpret the, hum the history of all of mankind by interpreting these fossils' genomes, and that becomes the narrative, this is a special day because of what happened to Martin Luther King Jr., and he has a very famous quote that resonates with me, and it's that we are not makers of history, we are made by history. This is my favorite quote by, by that man that I can think of right now. But I'm just, but it, it is apt. And the reason is, is like if we let a handful of people interpret the history of everyone by interpreting ancient genomes or by interpreting the genomes of people from Africa or by interpreting the, the genomes of other people, like this is our job, right? I would feel qualified to interpret the genomes of my community because I'm a member of that community, right? And I would run that past activists and leaders in our community so that it's culturally sustainable. Everyone at least comes to a compromise and is happy about it. So the technology has got to the point where we are sequencing and interpreting ancient genomes at an industrial scale. This is the industrial revolution, but in paleogenomic space. That's dangerous because we're letting a handful of people interpret all of those genomes. It should be done in a democratic fashion, and we should search for self-governance and democratization of those tools. And I just wanted to add that one of the misconceptions that, that we have, I think, as a public is that science is finished and it's objective. And these things are both false. And I mean science broadly defines that the whole STEM enterprise is neither finished nor is it objective, right? And so when we talk about these things and we, and we place it... Can you unpack it, the finished thing? What do you, I get the objective. Yeah, what I mean by finished is that it is, we are constantly asking questions and challenging those questions. Okay. So that means that there's power in who gets to ask the question. There's power in who gets to answer the question, and then there's power in who gets to authenticate whether that answer is true. Go ahead, okay. Right, I get that. and I so get I got you. Right. Yeah. So, so when when I hear these conversations and I think about them, the, my concern is is that we use technical terms and we put all this science into it, but it has never been either of those things. You know, physics came up as a part of fighting the war, right? Like right. genomics is not just like a thing we do for knowledge's sake. Right, like there is money to be made in that, and so I, I think we have to be careful when we're thinking about these things um, to think about them as if, like, if it's in a textbook. Maybe it's like the fake news in history, Absolutely. like it's sort of fake science and science books. That just because it's there doesn't make it true, and it's not objective. And that's the the Martin Luther King quote. Right, and. Uh, Sorry, and then the last thing I wanted to say was just in terms of that's why it's important that we do this. That, that's why we have to confound notions of objectivity with different perspectives and coming from a community because then we get to ask the questions and authenticate the answers. Now, Kildu, I also wanted to ask you, are those kits where you, I won't shout out the individual companies, but are they good? Are they good? Are they bad? Are they, is this like, a, is this just like a money-making thing? I did one, so I guess this is personal. I'm like, what did I participate in? Um, <laughs> since I have a geneticist, what, uh, can you tell us like, what's your take on those things? Okay, so let's think about big data science. When you're creating data, one, they're not giving you your whole genome sequence, okay? Let's take they have it. 23andMe, for example, uh, not to privilege them. 
they have your information. They've, they've returned to you via a glossy interface that you play with online that tells you, oh, I'm 2.3% Neanderthal, whatever, right? That interface... That meant a lot to me until you said okay. that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. But, but, but that interface is not... It's not necessarily true. It's an interpretation of select locations in your genome. So if your genome's six billion locations, units, they're only interpreting, you know, maybe half a million positions. They will go back to it later and sequence the whole thing because the consent that you signed, you you handed that over. That information will then be interpreted and aggregated in a meta-analysis and probably used and sold to big pharma companies to make money. This is a $1.5 billion company. So I take it you've not signed up for these services. I'm, I'm not for. I'm for the democratization of that information. I'm for self-government, governance, excuse me. I am for people taking control of their own genetic information and parlaying that and using that as a resource themselves. Look at how Amazon aggregates large uh, data sets and uses that to predict and prevent things, right? So this is a very valuable resource, mind you, and people are paying them $150 to do this, right? Like, what? So, so to me, I, I think it's best, you know. <laughs> but, but, but this is why we're having this conversation. We need to know, we can't be getting, you know, fleeced for information that's extremely valuable, especially if you're a minority. Can I write them and ask them my whole thing? Absolutely you can. Absolutely you can. Well, they, is you there can like say, an option? Who, who here, let me just... Can I send you my six billion? Yeah. <laughs> I know, can, I like, can, have, I, can I like upload it to Kyolu? Yeah, yeah. Like figure me out that com or something? <laughs> but, but who here has actually read the terms and conditions for the last song they bought or whatever on iTunes? Raise your hand if you actually did. Yes, are you a lawyer? No, yeah. <laughs> she's like I will not give yeah. them my stuff but go this, ahead somebody but this is one of the same issues that we face in genomics because if you're not reading all of the fine print you don't know what you're actually signing over and the point I wanted to get to is if 95% of clinical trials have exclusively featured individuals of European descent and 80% of genome studies also privilege creating a predictive and preventative medicine model within that population. That doesn't serve us up here. Certainly not me. I'm, I'm mixed ethnicity. That's a huge problem for a lot of these algorithms. But isn't that why I'm supposed to participate in them so I can diversify the data set? I'm just trying to think about my own decision I already made. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so I... He's looking for a cosign. I know. Right. I know. I'm like, <laughs> help me and, out here. Uh, and I used to feel that way. I did. I felt that way. I did. But I, I, think, I think now we should be cautious about what we participate in. If, it's a, if there's just a capitalistic goal and it doesn't serve the community, is that really going to reduce health disparities in the African-American community? Like that 23andMe has that? If they're going to develop a drug... I'm sold that, on this self-governance thing. I never thought it, about that. It's, that's what Indigenomics is about. You know? Go ahead with the plug. Go ahead. Yeah, no, <laughs> that was good. That, was, that no, just worked. But. Um, okay, I want to talk about the monthly web series, yes. but before we talk about that, because I just want to understand wh what you're trying to do, what's yes. your goal, da, 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 is that I do have one more question about astrophysics. Um, is that, so black holes yep. don't suck up everything like nope. they do on the cartoons, got that. <laughs> what is, what are you, what's your, what's the question? Are you trying to like figure out, can we fly into them? Are you, I mean, <laughs> that may, I don't know. Like, I don't know if they're like portals to, I don't, you know, I'm just telling you. <laughs> Wormholes. <laughs> And they're like, I don't know. Like, are We're they, done here. I'm just, I, I want to know what's like the big, yeah. maybe y'all know. Y'all don't know either. Y'all just won't say it. Is that, what's the big black hole question? So, I mean, there are many. Okay, give right? me the big, so, the good So ones. one big question is, why are black holes so massive? Are they actually black? They are. What's the absence, the absence of light? Of, oh. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Got Learning happening. Got <laughs> okay, go ahead. Right. So, so one of the questions is, how are they so massive, right? And if you, if you count up how old the universe is, and you count up how fast you think something can take matter on, they shouldn't be that big. And yet here they are being, you know, 10 
10 billion times the mass of the sun, right? So very, wow. very massive things. So one question is, well, how does that happen, okay. right? That's not the question I'm interested in, but it is a question that people ask. Um, other questions like the ones I'm interested in are, there are certain supermassive black holes, say a billion times the mass of the sun, uh, and for whatever reason, they are interacting with their environment at the center of this galaxy, mm. um, and they're able to spin up these jets of particles that are shooting it out at about 99.99% of the speed of light, right? So, Andrew, so they don't suck things in, they shoot things out. So no, I didn't say that. I did not say that. <laughs> That's what y'all heard. That's what I heard. They shoot the, they shoot the rocks out. Just like her. Just like Okay. I really, I'm trying to learn. I'm being honest. Okay. This is honest. Okay. Not, you said they no, shoot said, the jets said, out, the no, rocks. I said, I said somehow okay. they interact with their environment. Okay. Spin out these jets. They don't come from the black hole itself. Okay. I could really get into it if you want. No, I'm just, I really am trying to understand. I, this is the only conversation I've ever had in my life about black holes. So okay. I'm trying to like. Okay. I'm going to give you my favorite example of how to visualize it. Okay. Okay. So imagine that you have a basketball. Got it. I got that. See? <laughs> Done. I was like ready for something hard. I'm like. No. Woo. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Basketball. You have a basketball. Got it. Done. And you're spinning it on your finger. Got okay. It. Now, when you're spinning it on your finger, spin it so that all the black lines on the basketball are going up and down. So just, that's just, you just turn the ball. Okay. So the lines are going up and down. You know what I'm talking about? in my head. Okay, okay so okay. spin it. You okay. got to spin it on your finger. Keep yeah. it spinning. Oh, I got it, got it. I was slow on that one. Okay. Okay, so you got it spinning. Keep it spinning. Okay. That, we're going to imagine, is the black hole. Okay? Now, imagine then that you take a donut and you bring it down so that it's basically around the fattest part of the basketball. It's all spinning, okay? So you got this basketball spinning, you got this donut spinning around it. Any material that's going to fall onto your basketball, black hole, is going to do so by way of that donut. That's just the only way it can fall in. Okay. Now, it's, black holes are not 100% efficient at pulling things in because they're not vacuums in space. So some of that material in some way is going to be in, in, uh, interacting with your donut and your basketball, and it's going to sort of slingshot around from circling in like a faucet drain uh, to being sort of slingshot around and shot out from where the black lines meet at the top and the okay. bottom. Yes, okay. Still spinning. Keep mm -hmm. it spinning. Don't, right? So that stream, like, it's like putting a water hose on the end. That's going about 99.99% of the speed of light. Still so my spinning. question is, still, everything's still spinning. They don't stop. Don't ever stop spinning. <laughs> so my question is, like my actual research question is, how do you go from this basketball spinning with this donut around to this water hose that's shooting stuff out? What is the physics that allows that to happen? Uh, and how does it work? And, and the blazars that I study are if you take that whole system and now point the water hose directly at you. Earth, you. Mm -hmm. Then that's a blazar. And I want to know what, what happens there. So that's, that's a major question that I'm interested in. Okay. Thank you. For many of you, this is probably the only lesson you've ever gotten in astrophysics. This is certainly the only lesson I've ever gotten in astrophysics. <laughs> Or genetics. Uh, tell me about the web series. Okay, so I have a web series called On the Vanguard, Conversations with Women of Color and STEM. It's on my shirt. Um, and it's basically an online community and platform that highlights and centers women of color in STEM. Okay. And we do that from an intersectional perspective, that is to say that you honor all parts of your identity, and a social justice perspective, that is to say that you be who you are and you don't assimilate, um, while also loving STEM and your, and your interest. So we talk about all kinds of things. Uh, this last time we talked about Shuri and Wakanda. Uh, yes, we did. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we did, we did that from um, a black feminist perspective. So we talked about um, where Shuri would thrive, why she could thrive in Wakanda, why she doesn't thrive now, um, and all kinds of things like that uh, that are at the intersection of STEM interest and uh, personal identity. So that's what we do. You can find us at VanguardSTEM.com. Boom, boom, boom. Now, before we go, last question is, what, have a, what is a piece of advice that you would give to young people who are interested in the sciences today? Man, all right, I'll give you guys a, f a handful of things. One, if you're going to be in science, know that failure is inherent. Like, we do a lot of failure. That's what hypothesis testing is. So it kind of makes you calloused or hard, right? And then imposter syndrome is very real, right? Like, at every level you move up, this is just going to happen. You don't feel ready for something. You know, these things are all really important. 
And then one is more of like an experience I had that, that made me kind of question and refine the types of questions I answer. Uh, so I'm at this thing, the National Congress for the American Indian, and we're giving a talk on science and sovereignty. And I have all these tools out, like a mobile genome sequencer, mobile PCR kit, like all of this technology that is supposed to enable people to use these tools in the field. Like imagine your homestead in Hawaii or on a reservation, right? And there's a lot of influential people there. There's the president of the Navajo Nation is there, right? So I give this talk, and I'm Q&A, fielding questions, and this guy in the back is like, why should I give a shit about <laughs> these tools when we haven't had clean water in our reservation since 1912, right? Mm. You don't have a response for that, right? These types of failure, those moments really make you dissect what's the difference between what I intend what my intention is and what's the impact of my work. So obviously I went home, bought a six pack, you know, had a pity party, you know, but I, but, but it, it made me ground my work in what types of applications of my work are going to allow the communities that I want to work in, it work in a culturally sustainable way. And that's back to that self governance idea. So I would challenge everyone to think about that, this, dialectically intertwined relationship between intention and impact and just because you're going to you know use some really cool new type of technology does not mean that it's going to actually have an impact in the communities uh, where you would like to work cool. um i think the foundational piece of advice that i would give to any young person that wants to study science is to just do it and not apologize and ask the questions that you're interested in, and don't let anybody tell you that those questions are any less important than other questions, um, that your questions are valid, your reasons for asking are valid, um, and you don't actually have to justify it. You don't need a good answer to do it. You can just do it. Um, and the second thing I think I would say, or I do say all the time, is that um, you never have to ask permission. Many, many, many rules are arbitrary, and they are reliant on you to follow them even though they're arbitrary. So just go out there and do the thing, and if it breaks or you fail, it's fine, but keep going. If you're tired, rest, but keep going. There's no reason to stop. We appreciate all of you coming out tonight. We loved to have this conversation. I hope that you learned about astrophysics and yes. genetics like yes. I did. And we will see you in the lobby. Thank you all. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.